Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We review the Belgian Grand Prix and pay tribute to the late Antoine Hubert. Charles Leclerc finally claimed his long-awaited first Grand Prix victory at Spa on what was a very sombre weekend for Formula One following the tragic death of Antoine Hubert after a Formula Two crash on Saturday. That really cast a, a shadow over the, over the whole weekend. And of course, Charles Leclerc dedicated his victory to Antoine Hubert, who was a, a contemporary of his. I'm your host, Ed Stewart, and joining me to look back at the weekend first is Scott Mitchell. Now, Scott's Obviously, this was a difficult weekend for people after what happened to Antoine Hubert. Everybody made a real effort to pay tribute to him today and remember him ahead of both the F3 and the uh, Formula One races. Yeah, there was a, a minute silence, which was uh, incredibly well attended before the, the Formula Three race, F1 teams, uh, personnel, drivers, bosses, uh, which was really lovely. Um, stickers on several, many of the F3 cars this morning. Stickers on a few of the F1 cars as well. Everyone, all the teams on social media talked about uh, going on racing for, for Antoine. And there was a really nice fan initiative as well. I think on lap 19, uh, a round of applause around the circuit. 
from the fans for a minute. That was uh, 19 was 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 Antoine's uh, race number. So yeah, that was really nice. But it was very very difficult weekend for for a lot of people, and I'm sure many people will now be very grateful that we're 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 out of Spa and moving on to Monza. You're not going to forget what happened by any means, but just to get out of the circuit, I think is a, is welcome for everybody. And also a difficult weekend for my other guest, Jake Boxall-Legg, who worked in F2 and F3 before joining Autosport. And obviously you worked with Antoine Hubert in that capacity, so so knew him. Yeah, so he's absolutely lovely bloke. I think he had time for absolutely everybody. Um, he was the first person in GP3 last year that I did a proper interview with. And there was a brilliant situation where Alexa, the PR uh, head, messaged him to say, oh, you've got an interview with Jake. He turned up to the office with uh, with Jake Hughes in tow and he said, uh, yeah, well, you said I've got an interview with Jake and I've brought him along. So uh, it was a bit of a mistaken identity, but yeah, lovely bloke. Um, I think everybody felt it this weekend and it's going to be a big loss. In order to, to really get a good picture of uh, Antoine Hubert, both what happened, but also more importantly, the, the driver and the, and the, the man we lost, uh, I recorded an interview with Jack Benyon, our Formula 2 correspondent. He's not currently uh, currently here. We're actually travelling on our way uh, back from Spa, so uh, he's not in our car. So I, I recorded this with him to kind of tell the story of what happened and yeah, tell a little bit about, uh, about Antoine Best. It's about, about 15 minutes where we really can pay tribute to, uh, to the driver we lost. So Ferrari Formula 1 junior, Giuliano Olazzi, son of John Olazzi, got his car a little bit out of shape. He, he drives a Trident uh, on the exit of... Well, Eau Rouge up to Radion, where you draw the line where Eau Rouge and Radion finishes is, is up to you. But So coming out of the, of the left-hand? Yeah, coming out of the left-hander, he started to get a little bit squirmy and the car snapped at high speed. And basically what followed was a, a melee of action, which involved uh, Antoine spinning round and then he was hit by Juan Manuel Correa of the Sauber Junior team. So uh, a massive incident. Anyone who saw it on TV, unfortunately, in, in my opinion, it was it was captured for for all to see on TV. So uh, it was it was pretty graphic. Uh, but, but yeah, basically what happened was a lazy had, had got out of shape and that caused a, a big melee behind. And luckily, Juniano was, was okay. He managed to reach the bottom of the Kemmel straight before he pulled up and uh, saw him in the paddock afterwards. He was he was absolutely fine. Uh, Marino Sato also went off after that, but he was he was okay as well. So it was Juan Manuel Correa who was taken to hospital afterwards. And as we record this podcast now, is um, in hospital with leg injuries. So he's been uh, seen to at the moment. And Antoine uh, Antoine passed away. So very uh, very somber scenes in the Formula Two paddock. Um, everyone had gathered together in a sort of similar uh, similar area to see. Um, what was happening and uh, chatting to each other to try and work out how Antoine was while we were waiting for some sort of confirmation as to as to how he was and obviously at that point everyone was uh, you know looking up to the sky and uh, if you're if you're a religious person they were they were praying for for Antoine unfortunately you know he didn't make it through and uh, it's uh, it's difficult to describe the the feeling and the it's an intangible thing but it's uh, a very a very sad day for motorsport in general. Antoine's such a, a dynamic figure in the paddock that it'll be a great loss. Yeah, very much so. And it made a huge impact. Well, I was when the accident happened at Alex Alban's media session, uh, and obviously everything stopped there. And just uh, watching after so very very impactful. But it just it just seems one of those. We don't want to go too much into the mechanics of the accident. But it just seems like one of those things, wasn't it? That he about hit the wall, and then it was a secondary impact when he was collected. So all these structural damage. So just one of those. It, 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 kind of one of those disaster scenarios for an accident, isn't it? I guess 
it's very difficult to attribute blame in that situation. I, uh, from from what I saw of the accident, it didn't look like any. Well, certainly any driver was to blame for for anything that happened there. It just uh, any accident that happens at a Rouge of of any scale is going to be a big one at that speed. You know, these new F2 cars are flat through a Rouge, and although at the start of the race they bottom out quite heavily due to the, the fuel load, so that does scrub off a little bit of speed. But they're still flat through there, and uh, at the start of a race, obviously all the cars are bunched together, and that makes things, uh, you know, more likely to happen when when the cars are so close together. So, yeah, really, yeah, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's difficult to uh, attribute blame to any driver. I certainly wouldn't wouldn't try and do that. I think it was a uh, one of those crazy incidents of of circumstance, which it's very difficult to work out how you would have stopped that from happening. Antoine Hubert himself, obviously, he'd made a big name for himself. He's a runner, contracted driver won the gp3 title he was doing well in should we say not not the, the front running team in in f2 and bwt arden so antoine was a driver of of real quality and f1 promise i think to to the people who analyzed antoine's career maybe the, the people are a bit higher up maybe formula one level and and things like that probably he wasn't even on their radar until 2018 uh, i think it's fair to say antoine was well, his junior single-seater career before 2018 was very mediocre. He had uh, a season in European F3 with Van Amersfoort where he did win a race but was beaten quite quite comfortably by his teammate, Callum Eilat. He had two seasons in Formula Renault with, with Tech One, one of the leading teams, and his second season did yield fifth, um, but but still not a, not a dominant performance. And uh, arguably, uh, before that, his best performance was his first season in cars when he won the French F4 Championship against the likes of Jules Gunon. So a very up and down junior single seater career. And I think what 2018 and, and 2019 did was show or, or start to prove that he was turning into that driver that was capable of competing at the top level. I think before that, I certainly would have had question marks and I have no, you know, no fear saying that on, on this podcast and putting my name to that. I thought uh, if you'd have told me in 2017, Antoine Hubert was going to be a driver who would be in Formula One, I would not have taken that view seriously. But what he has done over the past two years is prove that his unwavering work ethic and his ability to digest data and then apply what he'd learned from that data on track had really made him a force to be reckoned with especially in a championship like formula two and and gp3 where track time is so low you need to start the weekend with a brilliant base setup and then be able to just tweak that slightly through the weekend rather than coming to a weekend having no idea what you're going to do with the setup because you've just not got the time to chase it on track so a combination of coming to a series where being able to digest data quickly is, is is key uh, a methodical method of looking after the tires and working with your engineers to create that package that is good every weekend and, and just needs slight tweaking is something that Antoine proved to be very good at. And this season in in Formula Two, difficult one to to analyse. Arden last year were uh, you know the, the second to last team in the championship, not considered a top team at all. Coming into this year, they signed a deal with HWA, who are new to single-seaters, but obviously we know what their facilities are like in, in Germany and some of the things they've done in the past with DTM, Formula E. Don't need to go too much into HWA's past, but their engineers have been very helpful to Arden this year. But it's really Hugh Bear who's kicked them on. He's really put his teammate to, to shame, Tatiana Calder, on this year, who's also an Alfa Romeo junior. So, um, you know, nothing to be scoffed at there. And he, he's done a fantastic job from, from the first race of the year. I think that showed perfectly what Hugh Bear's about. He had no radio from the start of the race. Started 11th on the grid in a car. Arguably, it shouldn't, you know, it should have finished there or roughly there or thereabouts and drove it up to fourth, managing to get the pit stop in with no radio and, you know, communicate that with the team. But also not have any information from the team about the tyres because it was his first 
event on the F2 tyre, which is slightly different to the GP3 or F3 tyre. So a whole lot of circumstances working against him and he still managed to turn that into a positive, which is what Antoine's been so good at. He's he's quite Prost-like in a way. He doesn't always win the most number of races or he's not always got that headline pole position or that fantastic time, but he works away behind the scenes. He's very methodical. And when the maximum position is there to be taken, he almost always gets it. And there's one weekend that's been a blotch this year and that was Baku where he made a couple of mistakes. Very difficult track to come to for the first time as a, as a driver, I think up there with Monaco in terms of, uh, especially the braking points and things like that consistently through a race when you're working with tired egg and things like that as well. So um, Baku, a difficult one and a bit of a, a bit of a mark, which he was really unhappy about, but the rest of the season has been good. But in typical Antoine fashion, it's always, uh, we need to focus. That was his uh, catchphrase. It was always, no, nothing was ever good enough. I think, I, I think I've written in the obituary this week that Antoine could have won the Le Mans 24 hours and the Daytona 500 in the same race and he still would have found a way to be upset about that. You know, he had to, always had to analyse everything and there was always something to focus on. There was always a bigger picture to play for and that's why he was so successful in 2018 because he was only a Renault affiliated driver in GP3 in 2018. He wasn't part of their junior academy, although he had the t-shirt and the, the trainers and all that kind of stuff. He, he had to prove that year. He had to win that championship to have any hope of Renault taking him on and further in his career. So not only, as we've talked about before, have the, you know, the 2018 and 2019 season show how far he's come. He's done that under intense pressure. You know, he, he would have been GT racing had he not won the GP3 championship last year, in my opinion, because that Renault backing was so key to him further in his career. And not only at, it, at that point furthered his career, uh, had many conversations about the Formula 2 driver market over the weekend as, as it's that time of year now where we're getting to that point. And, and I wrote a story a couple of weeks ago, actually, to, to say that Antoine's gone from being a, a cash-strapped driver who could only get in at Arden. That was the only place he could go. And this year, he almost had his pick of the teams because they all wanted him, seeing how, how good his performance was this year. And obviously, the money was a, a factor that he was working on for, for the rest of the season. But there's no doubt... Arden, they've got some big plans for next year and they would have kept him on had he uh, been persuaded to stay there. But also ART, where he won the GP3 championship, were also really keen to to have him in, in the F2 team, I think. Um, also, Dams would have been looking at him as well, um, the, the two big French teams, but also the two kind of best teams in the championship, really. So uh, he was definitely a, a person who was uh, in demand for next year. Um, and, and definitely a, a great talent lost. It's easy in these situations where something like this happens in a junior single-seater series and you you instantly fall into that trap of saying, oh, what could have been? You know, he could have been a Formula 1 driver and it, sometimes people can romanticise in that in that situation. But judging by Antoine's last two years, I think he would have had a very difficult next year in F2 in, in, in 2020 and he would have had, to, had a lot to prove. It would have been a similar year to what he had in 2018. But whether he could have made F1 or not, I don't know. It would have been... Uh, he would have had to have a very good... F2 year next year to persuade the Formula 1 teams that he's come far enough away from that mediocre element of his junior single-seater career to that breakthrough top-line driver situation and unfortunately we'll never we'll never get to to find out about that. It's one of those things isn't it? I mentioned Alex Albon earlier similar kind of stage of his career didn't have a brilliant start but then managed to kind of make a late surge and look where he is now so it's uh, it, it's all about the, the kind of momentum and the career trajectory hasn't it? It's certainly taken off uh, uh, through better over the past 18 months so yeah it's going to be one of those great sadnesses that we'll never see what he could have done but 
he's won an F2 race at Monaco, so that will always stand as a as a great achievement. So we did see a, at least a little bit of what he was capable of. Absolutely, yeah. He won the he won the Monaco race. Uh, he won the the Paul Card race the weekend before as well. His home track, which it was uh, something he was very happy with. Um, in fact, after all the titles and all the all the wins, the the happiest I ever remember Antoine was uh, Silverstone in in 2018 during the GP3 season. Where he won his uh, his brother collected his uh, university degree. Um, I'm not sure if it was actually a, classed as a university degree or whether it was a uh, a baccalaureate or, or something along those lines. But it was a, effectively a university degree, and it was also his granddad's birthday. And Antoine was such a, a family guy. You know, his his dad. Francois was a, a club level rally driver in, in France and um, obviously injected that love of motorsport into Antoine at a, a young age. But Francois, I don't ever remember Francois not being around, always in support. Yeah, his brother as well and helped out with his social media and uh, was also a big part of the, the weekends for Antoine. Very much a, very much a family man. Um, loved around the paddock. It's easy when, when someone passes away like this to, you know, to, to blow smoke and, and say things that aren't really true to, you know, glamorize the, you know, the, the fact that they've gone. But, uh, anyone listening to this who actually is part of the Formula 2 paddock or, or knew Antoine will, will know I'm definitely speaking the truth. He was, there was always a smile. Um, it's quite fitting we're recording this podcast and I'm wearing a Liverpool shirt because at the start of this season, uh, Liverpool played a friendly against Lyon, which was Antoine Hubert's team. That's where he was born and we beat them and I, Let's say I rubbed that in quite heavily on uh, Antoine and made sure he knew that Liverpool had beaten Leon. And since then, Liverpool results have been a, a key point between me and Antoine. We've always uh, had a bit of a laugh about that, and he's uh, definitely a, definitely a joker in the paddock. But I think the the amazing thing for me was I you know I could go to you know I could I could WhatsApp Antoine and ask him to to could could I have an interview and, and go and see him in the garage, and there there would be five or ten minutes of have you had a good time between the rounds have you been on holiday what did you do with your summer break uh, what's going on at home you know all the kind of usual questions that you you feel polite asking and uh, you, when, when it's someone like Antoine you actually want to know the answer and uh, they, they have some great stories to tell but as soon as the dictaphone switched on it's uh, a steely look in his eyes and a, a, a level of insight that you don't get from many drivers and the the way he could break down a race the way he could explain to you he wouldn't he wouldn't tell you a lot about data because he didn't want me to write about all his secrets and, and give them away to the other drivers. Um, but, or, you know, you, you could tell in the way that he dissected a race that he was incredibly insightful and the, the engineers that have worked with him have always respected his level of feedback, which is obviously always a key thing when you're looking at a driver going to Formula 1 is what is their level of feedback? Are they able to talk about what's happening to the car and, and manifest that in, in, in feedback that tells the engineer exactly what they need to do in a, in a, in a rapid manner? So, um, so much of... So much of Antoine as a as a person was fantastic. You know, you had that you had that fun loving side where he could go around the paddock on his bike and he would be chatting to all the other drivers, chatting to all the team bosses and having a real laugh just about life in general. But as soon as the helmet came on or the the you know, his 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 black framed glasses looked down at a piece of data, it was you know, it's serious business and I'm not gonna be disturbed from this. I'm taking this very seriously. And I think as we've uh, you know as we talked about earlier that, that that was one of the reasons why we saw him come to the fore so strongly in 2018 and and, and 2019 because although his you know his earlier junior single seater career was fairly mediocre his his progression and what he'd learned in those years combined with his determination and his ability to look at all these things 
really combined together to make a, a really significant package. And you mentioned Alexander Arban. There's a there's a few similarities you can draw there. Mainly the fact that Hubert has always struggled for money, and one of the reasons why I didn't mention earlier when we were talking about the fact that I thought he, he could be in GTs if he hadn't persuaded Renault that, or hadn't won the GP3 title to persuade Renault they should make him a, a full junior was that that brings a certain level of budget with it that was necessary for him to reach Formula Two. He never would have been able to do it on his own. So a driver who struggled with budget, maybe that's a maybe that explains a little bit about you know his uh, his early junior single seater days, and maybe they weren't chucking all the parts on that they could have been doing, or you know he's had uh, teammates who've had a bit more budget than him definitely in the past. But I, I think when we get to 2018, 2019, he was forming the foundations of what looked like a, a really positive career for the future. Great stuff there from from Jack Benyon, and I'd, I'd urge everybody to, if they get the chance, read his obituary and tribute that's on Autosport.com, and I'm sure it'll run in Autosport magazine when it's out on on Thursday, which really gives you an idea of uh, of, uh, of Antoine Hubert. Great stuff there from uh, from Jack. Well, I should say before we get onto the race that we are driving, so we do have an additional guest who's not an official guest because of the Don't Podcast and Drive initiatives, uh, which is Stuart Codling, who I'm going to allow just to say say hello and offer a little snippet of wisdom. This is, this is your shot, Codder, so say something good. Hello, listeners. It's 79 miles to Brussels. It's dark, and we're not wearing sunglasses. That was a relatively <laughs> useful interjection by, uh, by your standards. That was brilliant. Uh, very, very, uh, very well delivered. Yeah, and uh, you're doing a fine job driving. I, I will, of course, rate your driving as I do all the Formula One drivers to a weekend at the end of it. So I will be keeping an, an eye on things. Uh, but Scott, this weekend really was, it, it was kind of half a crushing weekend for Charles Leclerc in terms of the, uh, in terms of the performance he had. Three quarters of a second advantage in qualifying and he did lead effectively lead the race from start to finish obviously lost it briefly in the the pit stop sequence but in the end it was this tremendous chase from from Lewis Hamilton who got to within a second of of passing Leclerc so although this was Ferrari's race to to lose it, it was very very close and actually a lot tougher on Sunday than perhaps we expected yeah the joke um once we saw Ferrari's pace on Friday was was obviously how they're going to throw this one away and must admit, with a few laps to go, there were shades of Austria about this, where Leclerc was being caught by Max Verstappen and was eventually overhauled for the win. Hamilton was catching him at a proper rate of knots, but Leclerc just did enough to keep him at arm's length, and then by the time they crossed the line, the flag it was, what, 0.9 seconds. So a really tense finish to a Grand Prix that looked fairly settled. You're right, uh, Leclerc was very much in control. There was the bit where by virtue of Ferrari pitting Sebastian Vettel earlier than the earliest of that lead four, um, Vettel used the fresh tyres and Leclerc stayed out for long enough that by the time Leclerc pit and rejoined, he was several seconds behind Vettel. But such was the pace difference between the two. There was never any doubt that Leclerc was going to overhaul Vettel again. And when it came to it, Ferrari moved him aside. And while it would have been cool in a way to see a, Leclerc Hamilton wheel to wheel fight. I I must say that the right driver won for a couple of reasons. First, Leclerc's driven really, really well this year. When Ferrari's been at the races, Leclerc's been the one leading their challenge pretty much, with the exception of Canada. And he's lost the the win twice now. One through no fault of his own in Bahrain when he had the engine problem, and then again in Austria where maybe he was a victim of strategy maybe he just didn't really get his elbows out enough against Verstappen but he missed out again there 
So that was really well deserved for that reason. But the second one is I was it was such a horrible weekend after the the fatal crash on Saturday and you mentioned that Antoine Hubert was a guy that Leclerc started his racing career with back in 2005 in karts in France. They knew each other. Leclerc talked about how much of a shock it was and how big it, how hard it hit him. So if anyone was going to win the race in these circumstances, it feel I think it's it's only right and fitting that that, that it was Charles. And I think if if there was going to be any kind of silver lining to a really dark, horrible weekend, it was that Leclerc was the person standing on the podium and uh, and dedicating the, the win to Hubert. The fascinating thing was he was comfortably the, the faster Ferrari driver. The three-quarters of a second margin in, in qualifying exaggerated things. Vettel didn't really get his tyre prep right in all the traffic in, uh, in Q3 on his second run and lost a fair bit of time and struggled a bit in the middle sector. So... It wasn't that crushing an advantage, but he was the, the come through the stronger driver. The, the great irony of the race is because of this strategic decision Ferrari made, which was perfectly at, at, in fact, I think Ferrari absolutely got the strategy spot on in, in, in uh, this race with both cars. They had to pit Vettel earlier because he was under pressure from Hamilton. Uh, Leclerc was kind of inching away up the road in that phase of the race. He was a couple of tenths a lap quicker than Vettel, so he was well not quite disappearing. He was certainly. Uh, sort of chipping away and uh, slowly making good his escape. So they had to make the pit stop with Vettel to prevent the undercut from Hamilton. In fact, the lap that Vettel pitted on, Hamilton had been told to pit, but they cancelled it when they realised Vettel was going to come in. So it was one of those, oh, go in if he doesn't sort of scenarios. So that created this big offset. Obviously, Leclerc went six laps longer than Vettel. That's a pretty significant offset around a circuit of the length of, of Spa. Of course, it's only a 44-lap race. But what this created was the chance for Vettel actually to be the one that, that won Leclerc the race, perversely. There was that uh, that spell of about five laps where uh, Hamilton had, had closed up on Vettel. Leclerc had repassed Vettel. Basically, Vettel had let him pass. There's no point in, in them battling. And the gap was four seconds from Hamilton up to Leclerc. Then he got stuck behind Vettel and the gap grew to pushing uh, pushing seven seconds in the end. And in fact, all told... Lost about probably about six seconds, maybe a little bit more, to being behind uh, Vettel because obviously once he was past, he then had to recharge the battery pack and get the tyres under control. So actually, what they did with Vettel, leaving him out, having him there, I think really did make the difference and stop Hamilton from from getting to Leclerc in the end of the race. No, absolutely. And one of the things that I thought was uh, was was actually quite impressive was to see how the Ferrari was able to keep the Mercedes behind even when Hamilton had DRS. The Ferrari was so quick on the straights and it would be churlish to suggest that Ferrari has built a car that's going to be mega at Monza so it can finally win his home race again. But its characteristics are absolutely perfectly suited for for Monza and sectors one and, and three at Spa, it was absolutely stunning and that that qualifying advantage that they had in 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 those part in that part of the track did carry over to Sunday and Mattia Bonotto talked about this after the race that he thinks that was really significant that the, the strength that they had in a straight line was such that Hamilton couldn't just breeze past so that worked out absolutely perfectly for for Ferrari because it would have been interesting to see sort of had Le- Hamilton been able to catch Leclerc if he'd been able to hold on but I'd be quite interested to sort of hear what JBL thinks about the 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 split the sector one two three split at Spa. 
you can see off the bat that the two, the Ferrari and the Mercedes, both have inherent characteristics um, that you know are quite different to each other. They have different strengths. Uh, the Ferrari is fantastic in a straight line. It's got the most powerful when, uh, power unit on the grid. It's got a very very low drag car. But when it comes to slow and medium speed corners, it's just not on a par with the Mercedes. The Mercedes, that always used to be Mercedes' weakness. And now the sort of shoes on the other foot, really. And the Merc is absolutely brilliant in those particular situations. So you've got the two cars that are good in different sectors on the track. And it's it's really interesting to see like how perfectly defined the sectors are as well. You mean, you've got the first sector and that is ends at the end of Cam- the Camel Strait I believe um, and Ferrari had that absolutely locked down the second sector that's Mercedes sector and then you saw that in the race as well when Hamilton was catching Leclerc Leclerc was really really good on that first sector and that was where the Ferrari came into its own it doesn't it doesn't matter too much about low drag parts that you bring to Spa that you would usually bring there is still the difference between the two cars and their inherent nature. And so Leclerc was pulling away on that particular bit. But then Hamilton was getting him back and he was pulling over a second uh, in that particular sector as well. So it's it's very, very interesting to see the, the, the disparity between the two cars. I guess the really amusing, the irony was that the second sector ultimately did also play a part in Leclerc's victory in that as Hamilton was really, really closing in rapidly in those final laps... There was a point where he was kind of 1.1, 1.2 seconds a lap he was taking out of Leclerc. And then on lap 42 of, of the 44, they happened upon traffic, which was the, the Renault of Daniel Ricciardo and the two Haas drivers, Magnussen and Grosjean, who are having their own little battle. And basically, Hamilton lost time in the middle sector, not through any of those drivers being problematic. It's just where he happened to, to, to meet them. They were not in, in the right place for him to go past without losing time. So suddenly he was only half a second quicker on that lap. So that, that gave Leclerc maybe sort of six-tenths for three because Leclerc's lap times didn't didn't suffer. And so all these little things just added up to keeping Leclerc just out of uh, out of reach of, of Hamilton. Which is the opposite of what happened in Austria, where all of the things that happened after the start conspired to allow Verstappen to make that progress through the field and then get to the point where he could really turn it up and, and start to attack Leclerc. And he only missed out by a few laps there. It could very easily have gone the other way today. It's quite nice. I, I know things don't happen by chance in, in, in motor racing. It's all about playing percentages and then there's a few things go your way, but ultimately you, you make your own luck. And Leclerc was absolutely brilliant this weekend. He wasn't perfect in the race. He, I, would you say he got a little bit lucky with that lock-up at, uh, at the end of the Kemmel straight early on? I'm not sure about lucky, but it was certainly showed he was he was cracking on, and uh, and and it was it was an error. Obviously, the the stewards did note it. They didn't. There wasn't. They didn't see any gain. In fact, they saw a little bit of a time loss, so they didn't do anything about it. But that was that kind of wasn't a flawless drive because there was a mistake. And in a race like this, giving away any time at all is a is a serious problem. But beyond that, to be honest, I think it was very measured from the clerk to to drive the way he did, particularly after all the, the misfortunes he's had during the year that have stopped him picking up that, that first win and getting the results he wanted. So I, I think he, I, I think if he was a more experienced driver, you'd say, well, he used all his race-winning experience there to, to keep his car out front. And 
he did do that. It's just he doesn't have that much experience of winning an F1. That little error was just... It was one of those small details that added up to him winning because I can't remember how far into the race it was when he, he did that. Um, but if he did that mistake five laps from the end or two laps from the end, then he, he might well have lost the race. But it was when he was under pressure, when it really counted. You know, I, I asked him if the if the memory of Austria and to an, an extent Bahrain as well, those missed opportunities sort of made him a little bit more nervous in those last few laps, almost like a version of what we were joking about. I was like, right, how is this going to go wrong to, for Ferrari? And he said, no, but he knew that because it was Lewis behind him, he knew he couldn't afford to make any mistakes. And it's a, it's a bit like when uh, Bottas took his first win in F1, if you remember, um, when he had Vettel breathing down his neck and, if you're if you're trying to take your first Grand Prix victory and you've got a multiple world champion hounding you, starting to really put the pressure on, there can't be many worse feelings in F1 than than having your engineer over the radio saying gap to Hamilton, 2.5 seconds, and then a lap later gap to Hamilton, two seconds, gap to Hamilton, 1.5 seconds. It must it must just the the last few laps must have taken an eternity for Leclerc, but he he absolutely deserved it because he was he, he was brilliant this weekend. Yeah, very much so. Very well deserved first win, no question. It's the first of many, uh, and a, a good drive from Lewis Hamilton. Didn't have a chance in qualifying. Put the car third, and all the time that he was closing in on Vettel, he was also asking for time uh, gaps to to Leclerc. So when he was when he was working on getting second place, he was really concentrating almost on getting first place, should we say, at that point. So a very, a very good drive there from, uh, from him. I guess we should talk about the, uh, the problems at the start. Jake, we saw Max Verstappen have a collision with, with Kimi Raikkonen. Uh, can you just talk us through that and, and how you saw it? Yeah, so uh, Verstappen obviously was quite eager to get away because we're starting in fifth. Uh, I think last previous races he's been afforded a bit of a luxury uh starting higher up and he just didn't have the performance today so he was e- eager to go and make some ground but i think it was a little bit optimistic let's say and he shoved his car down the inside of the source uh kimi raikkonen had the line um and i don't think that with with the amount of where the cars where they were um there wasn't really anywhere else raikkonen could go and so verstappen kind of just ends up t-boning him a little bit and going into the side of him and then that kind of created a little bit of a not quite a chain as such but then that sort of put other people out of position some people had to take evasive action like uh, Sergio Perez for example a number of other cars kind of got involved in a little bit of contact uh, at the start and then that had basically broken Verstappen's suspension at that point and then as he assumed the position to head up towards Eau Rouge um, the tow link just gave way and you know his race lasted at all of 400 meters really so i think that was the end of his day yeah the good thing was he what he was aware there was possibly something wrong so he was being very very cautious into a rouge hence it wasn't a, a massive accident although just as it was happening you can see the the, the wheel starts to be all over the place when the tolling's going and then Raikkonen sort of sweeps around the outside and he did actually slightly clip Raikkonen with his uh, with his front wing as he was having his off through no fault of his own it was just uh, one of those things but uh, yeah it, it put Verstappen out of contention obviously Scott he probably wasn't going to be a significant factor because he, he had had to go back to the uh, to, to, to two steps old Honda engine hadn't he? Yeah, so um, we didn't uh, we didn't know this until Christian Horner let it slip after the race that um, both the Red Bull drivers were back on uh, Spec 2 engines. 
And for those losing track of what engine everybody's on now, which is completely fair because it's been quite a relentless uh, upgrade drive from from Honda, they introduced the Spec 2 engine in Baku. And then they ran the Spec 2 engine until France. And then from France onwards, they were on Spec 3. And then Albon and Daniel Kvyat in the Toro Rosso gave the Spec 4 its debut in Friday practice. But Albon was never, wasn't never was running the, the Spec 4 in the race because it was all about managing mileage. So Albon went back to a Spec 2 because I don't believe there was a Spec 3 available. I could be wrong. And Verstappen was meant to be on his Spec 3 all weekend, I believe. But after a bit of a problem in, in, in Friday practice where he reported some issues, uh, which I think, uh, I, I, as I understand it, that's related to how hard he had to run the engine in Budapest when he was trying to win. They've just, there's basically been some just long-lasting damage that they, they, they maybe either underestimated or didn't quite expect. So they, they shipped out the Spec 3 engine overnight on Friday, went back to a Spec 2, so a little, little bit older, a little bit more mileage, not quite as powerful. Um, so yeah, just it, it was never going to be, it was never going to be a brilliant weekend. It is a power sensitive circuit. Honda's making progress, but it's still going to be a Red Bull weak spot, um, and it just went from bad to worse. It was such a, I think Fred Vasseur called it stupid, didn't he? The first corner accident. Not saying that Max was stupid or Kimi was stupid. Just said the accident was stupid. Well, it's one of those things that I think Verstappen. He was he was perfectly entitled to go there, and there was enough room for them all to get round. But putting your car right on the inside there at the source, basically on the inside of, well, there wasn't anyone directly on the outside of Raikkonen. It still makes you kind of the inside of almost three cars there tends to go wrong. I think it was a little bit daft of Max to think that he could dive down the inside of two cars and the car on the outside know he was going to be there. And I think it was equally daft of Kimi to swing his car across to the apex when he's overtaken a car at the start and he knows there'll be one on his inside. That yeah. just strikes me as baffling. Yeah, he didn't completely need to, to do that. It's that, that thing you see as people sometimes taking apexes from wider positions at the, at the first corner when they're not sure. I mean, Kimi said he didn't see him. So I, it was a racing incident, but it's just one of those ones that ideally needs not to happen. And, and as, as Jake mentioned, it did create problems for others because we saw... Ricardo had to kind of lift and tighten his line to avoid Raikkonen at the exit of the corner, and he came into contact with Lance Stroll's racing point. So we saw the Renault up in the air, which sent Ricardo into into the pits. Shall we have a very brief conversation about Valtteri Bottas? I mean, what's there to say? Really, it's just he was he was good, but not quite as good as Lewis Hamilton, and that's the story of his three seasons at Mercedes so far, isn't it? Yeah, very much. So. I mean, he did a decent job. He's obviously he's been re-signed for. Well, no, they've taken up his option. Sorry for uh, for next year. Get the terminology right. That is significant. So he will be at Mercedes next year. That was announced, and he did the job they, that he's there to do. He was he was sat behind Hamilton in the race. He was a little bit slower in qualifying. He ran fourth, and then he did pick up third place because Vettel, after he was passed by Hamilton, um, not long after, headed into the pits, and then he obviously got fastest lap and he closed on the last 10 laps I think on Bottas by half a second a lap but it wasn't quite enough he fell a few seconds short of being able to threaten Bottas so Bottas ended up in in third head of Vettel's uh, Vettel's fourth so yeah not much to say about Bottas's weekend not not bad at all yeah he, absolutely very decent it's just perfectly Valtteri wasn't it Bottas was 
was closer to Hamilton's performance than Vettel was to Leclerc. So we should talk about Vettel, and he struggled unusually with with tire management uh, in this race. And um, in fact, Leclerc that had been a bit of a little bit of a weakness of his, not a massive weakness, but a little bit relative to Vettel, who's normally very good at it. And actually, it was Leclerc who aced it, and Vettel who was struggling a little bit, which created this whole scenario with the early stop and then what what happened in the race. With, and do uh, you know why that is, Ed Straw? Well, it's it's tricky because the one thing that's clear is obviously the... I mean, we, we saw on the soft, I mean, he struggled in the first in a little bit as well. We saw on the softs on Friday that his long run dropped off dramatically. I think if you worked out the average over nine or ten laps, he was about, made the Ferrari about the sixth fastest car or something, which clearly it wasn't, but a dramatic drop off. But obviously when you're, they were running quite well trimmed out as well, so it's sliding around a lot in the middle sector. Now, exactly how Vettel was able to, usually in this situation, if you can minimise the sliding and you can uh, control the slip of the rear wheels as you're, as you're feeding the throttle in, that will stand you in good stead. I suspect that this is partly down to Leclerc has, has made an improvement and, and changed what he's doing. And the only thing I can see that would be different compared to Vettel in previous races is the, is the low downforce. So I imagine it's down to that. Um, yeah, and just uh, just one of those days where it didn't didn't quite work for him. The reason I ask is because when Mattia Bonotto, Ferrari team principal, was asked this after the race, he said he didn't have an answer yet. That's so interesting. Maybe I mean you obviously haven't given a conclusive answer there, but may you you you've offered slightly more insight as to why that 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 struggle might have taken place a little bit more than Mattia didn't really want to go into much detail. He also didn't want to refer to the gap between his two drivers as big in terms of how they hand, like they fared with the tyres. But I, I would say it was big because Leclerc didn't need to make a second pit stop and Vettel did. I mean, we did see the 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 question of where, where the, the drop-off happened because when Hamilton then started to really catch Leclerc in that second stint, as he was kept being told by the by the Mercedes pit wall, it was about the same time that, that they saw the drop off with Vettel. Vettel did drop off actually more dramatically and then come back. So I did wonder if there was a little bit of graining going on there because sometimes you see that that there's a bigger drop off and then it comes back a bit. Although the graining overall does accelerate the the, the dagger over the life of, of the tire. Um, but yeah, Vettel was inferior to Leclerc on that. He was he was not as quick as Leclerc. Interestingly, we should say if we look at their ideal laps in qualifying. Uh, Vettel's ideal best lap was only two tenths off Leclerc's best, but obviously toes create quite a bit of of uh, variable in that. But uh, anyway, yeah, very clearly uh, uh, Leclerc was the uh, was the superior, and probably it'll be something to do with the work he's put into it and the unusual circuit with the low downforce. That has to be the uh, the answer will be in there somewhere. But I imagine Mattia Bonotto will. Uh, will have, uh, uh, have got to the, the bottom of it, or his, his team will. We're about 50 miles outside of Brussels at the moment in our little convoy, and we've either entered a particularly smelly part of the uh, Belgian motorway, or Ed Straw wasn't speaking very honestly there, and was uh, speaking a bit of bull, so to speak. But I don't think it's that. I think Ed was absolutely spot on, and he's actually just a pretty stinky part of Brussels. This is definitely an, an ambient condition uh, situation. But, as ever, Stuart Codling, our driver, is doing a, an outstanding job. Would you like to make an interjection at this stage? We've clearly passed some sort of open sewerage network, haven't we? Yes, that's good. Uh, good confirmation there. I should add, I, I've, I've stopped us from having an extra guest by turning the sat nav down. So you may have heard that in the in the background. Or oh, Stuart Godling has something else to say. It's quite a difficult process. I have to sort of lean across and point the microphone at him because he, he steely does not take his eyes off the road. I, I've just realised that Open Sewerage Network is a great name for a band. 
Well, there we go. That's a uh, excellent uh, suggestion there. Uh, let's get back to the uh, to the serious stuff now. Looking a little bit further back, um, Alexander Albon finished fifth. His first weekend with Red Bull, uh, I, I was impressed with with how he performed. He obviously had a, depending on how you look at it, a, either a difficult hand or a good hand to play because the pressure was instantly taken off. As you said earlier, Scott, he took that uh, Spec Four Honda for Friday, so he had a back of the grid penalty, uh, and then obviously he went back to the Spec Two for for Saturday and the, and the race. But it meant he had to come through from the uh, the lower reach of the grid, seventeenth. In fact, just checking checking my notes there. And, and the, it was a very good drive from him, wasn't it, Jake? Because he, in the first stint, starting on mediums, he didn't really go anywhere. He just sort of sat there. He was, I think he briefly, he got to 13th at the initial start and he slipped behind Hulkenberg. So he, he basically held 14th for quite a substantial amount of the race. But then his race came to life and he made a load of passes late on once he was on the on the softs and, and came through to finish fifth in that slightly slightly mad finish. Well, that was the crucial thing in that first stint. It did look like he wasn't going anywhere and you were sort of sat there thinking, uh, this is a little bit disappointing. Obviously, we knew no, it was in a difficult situation with regards to power units and grip position and having to learn an entirely new car in a weekend. But you were sort of hoping for a little bit more. And then it, But the crucial thing was that he didn't let the cars in front of him get too far away and it was quite bunched up prior to that pit stop phase then it started to come to him a little bit and he stayed out on his uh his medium compound tires where everybody else was you know pitting from their softs and so he was going further and further up the order and then he grabbed a pair of soft tires and he ended up back down in i think about 14th 15th just a pair of soft tires uh a a pair of soft tires (laughs) a quartet of soft tires um (laughs) this isn't nascar you can't just change the outside tires uh, that would uh, that would liven things up a bit, wouldn't it? Um, but he, yeah, he grabbed some soft tires. Um, ended up about fourteenth or fifteenth. Um, but then, well, he actually was basically back to fourteenth yeah. once he once he gone through that phase. So he had, in, in not a bad way, but he had basically gone nowhere because that was laying the groundwork for what was to come. Yeah, but then, as I said, he didn't let people get too far away, and people weren't too bunched up. And he had the soft tires. They'd proven that they could last for about 16, 17 laps. Um, and so before they started to fall away, at least a little bit. So we had plenty of time to go go after the cars in front of him and go and make some moves. And he did that, didn't he? He really gave it everything. And it was a combative drive. It was, it was smart. He wasn't, you know, taking the mickey out of the tires. He wasn't pushing too hard. He was just working really hard at trying to get ahead of the other cars and Scott wants to say something. Well, I do want to say something. Oh, we're, we're, I'll, I'll we're, let Scott we're, talk. We're, po- we're passing the mic between us back here. Um, like, it's like, it's like we're at a, it's like we're exchanging parcels at a, a birthday party back when you're like eight or nine. Um, the thing with uh, Alex's weekend that I, I found particularly impressive was he wasn't really meant to give Red Bull like a firm judgment at the end of the weekend. It was meant to be right. Okay. You can feed yourself into this. You're not going to do qualifying. There's no initial qualifying comparison to Verstappen. You're starting at the back in the race, so no pressure. You can't really go any further back. So quite a nice, less pressurized way in. But they've got to the end of it where Christian Horner must be pretty chuffed, actually, with the job that Albon's done. And he's actually 
given an incredibly good account of himself in the circumstances because yeah it wasn't a great first stint but they obviously struggled on on, on that tire they were much happier once he switched to the softs but he was combative once he got back out and, and you asked Christian this didn't you Ed um that, that was the thing that Gasly was really bad at and and Albon actually looked like someone able to hustle it and force the issue yeah, very, very much so. He, he did that superbly with a number of the passes, even even on drivers who were struggling a bit. I think Ricardo, he uh, he made a move that was not a not a straightforward one, even though Ricardo was on very aged tyres and and falling back. That just sort of showed that decisiveness. And yeah, uh, Christian didn't really want to get into that too much because he was obviously he was being very careful not to be negative about Gasly, uh, shall we say? But yeah, that, they were delighted with Albon. They really liked the way he worked, the methodical way he worked with the engineers understanding things, taking things in. So he, he did a very impressive job. And we, and we should say, he finished fifth, but he was actually seventh at the start of the, uh, at the, start of the last lap. But uh, yeah, firstly, uh, and, and JBL can uh, explain this, uh, Lando Norris, who had basically who had held fifth from lap one to the end of lap 43 after keeping out of trouble. He was very sensible at the start and, and managed to, to keep himself out of the way and get straight up to, up to fifth. Norris didn't quite make the finish, did he? No, and it was a shame because he'd had an excellent race. He managed everything fantastically. And from his perspective, it must have been quite boring. And then his power unit started to go. And I'll go on a tangent and say that it kind of bookended McLaren's race. Carlos Sainz had it at the start. Um, He came into the pits, I think, at the end of the formation lap and tried to go for a reset, but that didn't work. Um so he went back out and he was trundling around before he came to a stop at uh, the bus stop uh, runoff and then Norris was going along absolutely fine and then the last few laps the power started to go and he was playing with his engine modes and he was trying to give himself a little bit more power I think McLaren gave him uh, the chance to do so but it then it just kept dropping and dropping and dropping until he had nothing left in the car and he had to he had to park up on I think basically when he just started his final lap so it was it would have been absolutely heartbreaking for him I'm sure um yeah he just he just crossed the line but he ended up being classified 11 so he crossed the line to finish the the penultimate lap so he was a lapped finisher so yeah and p5 would have been his best finish in formula one he's got a sixth in Bahrain that would have topped that um and then, yeah, so that allowed uh, what was the battle between uh, Perez and Albon to uh, move up another gear, I guess. Well, that was a, a great fun battle. So Albon's now in six with Sergio Perez, who had, had a decent weekend. Obviously, he switched back to an older engine because he'd lost his new spec Mercedes engine. We should say Ferrari, Mercedes, both also had new spec uh, engines. Though. And in fact, Renault did, uh, did as well, that, that, that ran, but then none of them actually raced the new spec Renault engines, did they? But... We had this amusing situation where going into La Source, Perez didn't want Albon to get... Perez was all over him. and Albon was all over Perez and had tried to get past him at the bus stop chicane the previous lap. So Perez went really wide at La Source, kind of inviting Albon to go past and cross the DRS detection line first, which would mean that Perez would have got a DRS and then gone back past him. But Albon was... Uh, was uh, wise to this. He said it was a bit like a VSC restart where you're going slowly before gunning it. And he managed to... to not to cross the DRS detection line first. So he had DRS. And then when he went to pass Perez on the Kemmel straight, Perez moved over to the right. And uh, to his credit, Albon kept his foot in, right side of the car on the grass for a fair period of time. And uh, yeah, nicked fifth place on the on the last lap, which I think was a, a nice uh, 
gutsy move and he certainly seemed to enjoy it from what he was saying when I spoke to him after the race. For Alban to finish from where he started fifth, that was on paper the best possible result. And while there was a little bit of good fortune with Norris, yeah, he's uh, banked himself a lot of credit with, uh, with that. And good, and good to see Racing Point having their, their best performance in dry conditions in a normal race. Of course, Lance Stroll finished fourth in the wet in Germany. But that's the first time we've seen a, a, a Racing Point finish so high up since Baku, where Perez was also sixth. So positive for them at a track where they tend to, uh, tend to go well. Uh, it, it was actually quite a lively race in the, the midfield battle because we did see quite a few offset strategies didn't we with drivers like Ricardo, who had to stop on that one after the, the the contact trying to get all the way to to the end and only fading out the points in closing stages the Haas drivers were sixth and seventh Grosjean and Magnussen early on Magnussen plummeted very quickly I, I thought I actually thought Grosjean drove a very good race yeah. um, and he probably would have got points had he not just got stuck behind Ricardo for so long in the second stint they were struggling on straight lines on straight line speed the car just seems to be carrying too much too much drag it's not aero efficient enough so the Haas drivers kind of faded and then we saw those unorthodox strategies so Daniel Kvyat came through Nika Hülkenberg um, Pierre Gasly on his return to Toro Rosso getting a ninth place and then Lance Stroll got 10th um, on the last uh, he benefited from uh, from what happened to Norris and he had a brief wheel banging moment with uh, Grosjean there's some great uh, great battling going on in that part of the field yeah, it's it it really good. It was a good advert, actually, for what the um, the midfield is capable of. It was the, the Haas slump was was just the usual baffling capitulation of a race, wasn't it? It looked so good for them early on. They were sixth and seventh, weren't they? I really fear for that team going to Monza next week. And maybe they maybe they've got something even more extreme in terms of low drag to to to, to roll out in, in Italy, but. It's not the first time we've seen them sit as sitting ducks, is it, in a straight line? But they talked about both being on the latest spec um, of, of car here because they don't have a low downforce setting that fits the, the spec Grosjean was using, which was the original spec that he started the season with. So this was meant to be something that was bespoke and was meant to work at Spa, and it clearly wasn't very effective. And Sixth and seventh would have gone a long way to turn around their season, and instead, uh, you've got Kvyat. I think Kvyat strengthened Toro Rosso's hold on fifth in the points. Obviously, they've got really lucky that Norris didn't bank points for fifth; otherwise, it would have been even further ahead. But Racing Point got a good haul, so it's just it's just awful, isn't it? It's bad to worse for Haas. Uh, we should briefly mention Antonio Giovinazzi, who. Um really needs to in the second half of the season start stringing things together properly uh, his underlying pace in the first half of the year has been good but there have been a few too many errors and he wasn't quite stringing together weekend, race weekends the way he uh, he should do and I was, I was hoping that he'd start the second half of the season doing that but having basically run really long, really deep into the race, made quite a late stop and then he made the use of the tyre advantage he picked up some places, he got himself up to ninth place which was a good effort so he passed Gasly and and Ricardo, I think. Um, an so, impressive pass on Ricardo as well, yeah, around so, the uh, outsider Brussels. Exactly, yeah. And so he'd done all the hard work. He was going to bank what would have been his best F1 finish. He finished eighth on the road at Hockenheim, but that was uh, lost to the uh, the time penalty for the illegal start configuration. And then poo on a few laps from home, Jake. Bam. Yeah, straight in the wall. Um, just went too wide on the exit curve. Curve. Uh, just lost control and then ended up in the wall and that was it um 
and then obviously that had a knock-on effect for the the rest of the race and the yellow flags came yeah. out um, yeah, that's a safety car didn't it and that kind of preserved uh, Leclerc's lead uh, at the end of the race but yeah it's a shame because you can see he's getting more and more confident and he's making those moves and that move on Ricardo was really really great to see and then he goes and does uh, goes and spoils it all by doing something stupid like throwing it into a wall at Pouard <laughs> and uh, that's you know then it ends up being a pointless weekend for Alpha because uh, Raikkonen ended up just floundering at the back of the field there's no way our designated driver is not going to have to pick up on what you just said <laughs> so I do I, sometimes you know when I'm subbing or whatever JBL's work I do pick up on his excessive punnery which I know is a massive double standard but that time I, I just had to giggle yeah it's just it was, it was sort of the first because obviously it's a multi-part corner on it's the first uh just really unfortunate for him and um I had a quick look at his onboard and he just he just said nothing he, he reported he was okay but there was no there was no communication really from him it was he knew what he'd done I think he was rightly embarrassed wasn't he yeah but he, it's so frustrating because he'd done all the hard work and I there is a driver in there, but he's only he's sat there on one point now, and, and level with Robert Kubitzer, exactly, and one and, more point than George Russell, exactly, and, and we're at the point now where the because we've had all these driver market decisions, Bottas is at Mercedes, we know O'Connor's at Renault, Nico Hulkenberg will decide what he's doing next. He could very well end up at Haas, and so the, the kind of dominoes are falling, and that means that now we're starting to get to the point where teams like Alpha can start to decide what they're doing or make progress in deciding what they're doing next year and obviously that's the Ferrari controlled seat and the fact Giovinazzi has has started the second half of the season with that that blunder is 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 quite bad for his prospects I, I would suggest but no, he's a quick driver I just want to see it. there are just too many mistakes and actually you can find with him lots of little sneaky mistakes he's made here and there that don't really make the coverage but overall I, I, I guess the, the positive thing in terms of what happened in the race is that Ferrari has at least got the monkey off its back and finally got the, the the first win of 2019 which they desperately need i think we said before that if they can't win at spa they can't win anywhere they'll they'll go to monza rightly encouraged because monza's even more power sensitive and they'll also go there though with a little bit of a concern because Giovinazzi had an engine failure in qualifying and leclerc and vettel will take that new spec engine for monza so the one new, the, well, the, the 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 one Alpha that took the new engine expired. Has didn't seem to have any problems, so hopefully it's a an easily identifiable problem that's that's fixable and, and not anything fundamental. Because Ferrari should go to Monza with with the the best chance of winning the home race. Yeah, well, we of course will be uh, be going to Monza. Sadly, we will not have Stuart Codling as our uh, as our driver. Do you have anything to say as we? I'm gonna I'm gonna rate you. I'm going to rate you a nine for your driving, which has been very, very good. Um, that that's very generous, Ed. Where have I lost the mark? I feel you've done excellently, but there was no point where you really forced the issue and really changed the the landscape, the nature of the journey. You've done the journey very, very well, and I think when we go over the data later, which I will do, uh, it'll show that you did. Yeah, you just did everything right. But you know, you've, you've not sort of 
you've not forced the, the issue and, and crushed the opposition. Uh, but yes, we will be back at, uh, at Monza. We will preview the Italian Grand Prix on our next podcast, which is out on Thursday. Of course, the podcasts come out every Monday and Thursday, so please do subscribe. Check out autosport.com, all sorts of news and features from the world of Formula 1 and the rest of motorsport on there, including Jake Boxer Legs' piece on the spec of cars and the approaches taken to ultra-low drag Monza. Do check out motorsport.com, F1 Racing Magazine out monthly and Motorsport News out every Wednesday. And obviously Autosport Magazine is out on Thursday. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a world. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The Just Because deal. Hey, oh, what's this? Breakfast from Mickey D's. From me? Yep. Why? Because it's morning and you like McDonald's. Let's eat while it's hot. There's a deal for every act of kindness at McDonald's. You don't need a reason when the one and only hot and melty sausage McMuffin with egg is just two fifty. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.